Lewis, or Bill Conrad, was an assistant district attorney in Rockwall County, Texas, who lived a double life. This double life would prove fatal in November of 2006. Chris Hansen, To Catch a Predator, and the perverted justice team would soon be in a storm of controversy. The nature of this episode is heavy. We will be discussing suicide, not in depth, but there will be mention of it, so listener discretion is most certainly advised. Today we're going to talk about the suicide of Bill Conrad, otherwise known as Lewis in some occasions, but I'm going to call him Bill because that seems to have been his preferred name. Bill Conrad was an assistant district attorney at the time of his death serving in Rockwell County, Texas. Prior to that, he held the office of district attorney for two decades in Kaufman County, Texas. Um, He took a shot at a district judge position, which is why he left his DA job and why he eventually became the assistant DA over in Rockwell County. He was well-liked by his coworkers, and there are several accounts of people's vision of his character, like his family and people that he worked with. But just due to what we'll be discussing today, I I don't really want to paint him in any light, good or bad. I just kind of want to talk about what happened and let everyone come to their own opinions. Bill Conrad would eventually take his life in November of 2006 after being involved in a sting related to the Dateline NBC show To Catch a Predator. Bill had been chatting with the decoy used in To Catch a Predator. I'm shortening that to TCAP for the rest of this, by the way. It's just a lot easier to say. For weeks. Anyways, they've been chatting. TCAP worked with an organization called Perverted Justice. Sometimes you'll see that referred to in articles as PJ or Peach. They assisted in making contact with predators a lot of the time and exposing them. Um, This decoy, though, working for them, posed online as a 13-year-old boy. He chatted with Conrad's burner account, username inxs00. Conrad was actually playing a decoy himself in a way. Uh, He was posing as a college student, sending naked photos of said college student to this decoy kind of like random side fact i found out that that decoy that uh he made five thousand dollars per episode so you know it was decent pocket change for him for sure they would finally get a phone call with bill on november 4th of 2006 uh which i it was really hard to listen to the whole phone call so i honestly i didn't i just listened to the brief bits in the interviews that i saw and essentially the phone call led to him giving information that would sort of uh, indicate his true identity yeah this would sort of lead to him getting caught up in all of this and i think this phone call is also sort of what tipped him off that maybe this 13 year old kid wasn't a 13 year old kid um and you know i've seen this show a lot of you have seen this show a lot of times the predator will go on the show and say oh i i knew this was gonna be to catch a predator i knew you were gonna come out after they've been caught and i do think that you know especially at this point the show had been on for a few years some people probably a lot of people probably knew about this and especially if they are the kind of person who is chatting with people online that they should not be chatting with i imagine that sort of thing was kind of shared in this circle like hey man watch out But of course, despite potentially knowing that it was a risk, I think like many addictions, they just, you know what, I'm going to take that risk anyways. Uh, So there's a lot of debate and like I said, controversy over the details of the events that followed pretty much, I mean, really just everything surrounding it. So take that with a grain of salt. As always, I encourage everyone, do your own research. You know, I'm 
starting this discussion and let's continue it you know so there was some rumors that he after the phone call ended started deleting stuff off of his myspace account which those rumors have been squashed i i'm going to believe that he probably didn't because that seems to be the most popular opinion there's even one person who was close to conrad a man named detective jim patterson in murphy texas he got hired to work for the the sting operation he wasn't involved in the arresting officers who would be taking him down but he was uh he he was there to protect like the non-police volunteers uh in the operation so that was pretty interesting but he said that he was told by tcap's lead producer that he wasn't allowed to tell his police chief about the events that were transpiring okay you're a police officer though i I, (laughs) like why are you trying to say that somebody told you you can't do your job as a police officer. I don't know. I fail to see the the validity in that. As we know, if you've seen the show, what they do is they set up a safe house where they lure the predator to, and that is, you know, sort of a controlled environment where they can confront him. He's not in his, you know, home turf so to speak and so he's probably going to be you know off his game off his guard and you're you're going to be more likely to trap him the house that they were attempting to lure bill to was in murphy texas which is about an hour hour and a half from where he lived something i also forgot to mention is that in the phone call uh it went on for a decent amount of time but then he just apparently abruptly ended the call and that's where that rumor came from that when he ended the call he then went to his MySpace account and started just mass deleting stuff. So obviously when he hung up, they were thinking, okay, the jig is up. You know, he's not coming here. That's gonna, that's pretty clear. So, you know, like I said earlier, the show had been on for a couple of years. So I think everybody knew that the potential is he knows what's going on and he is probably trying to do some damage control. If he has anything on his computer, he's probably trying to delete it. So, you know, one thing leads to another and that's how that goes. And I think just based on that, I do think that he did know what was going on. This is when they did something they had never done on the show before. They brought the operation to Bill. Now entering the scene, we have a man named Bill Myrick, Murphy Chief of Police. Now this guy was hungry for his slice of the pie. Let me tell you what, he was gung-ho to get this done. He was, I swear, it sounds like he was at Chris Hansen's beck and call. Like, what do you need? I'm gonna do it. Like, I I don't know if he wanted the fame. I I don't know if he had a personal vendetta against Conrad. Who knows? Like, you know, small towns, but oh my gosh, this guy. So at about 12 a.m. on November 5th, 2006, Hansen, urged Murphy police to present Conrad with arrest and search warrants. And Myrick was like, I got you, buddy. Uh, During that process, Myrick would apparently rush both warrants and he bypassed the approval of any Texas officials like the Texas Rangers, a local DA, uh, starting a grand jury inquiry, things that you're probably supposed to do. A local municipal judge would sign the warrants and by midday November 5th, they would be ready to go. However, TCAP showed up to his neighborhood at like 8.30, 9 o'clock on the day that this happened. So for several hours before police arrived, they were pouring around his house. I guess some neighbors had seen the crew like sneaking around around his house and called the police on them, not knowing what was going on. So that's ironic. I don't know if it got the police there any faster or what. So because of the rushed nature of it all, naturally there were some mistakes. The warrant had all 
kinds of wrong information on it, like wrong city, wrong county, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they tried calling Conrad, but shocker, he did not answer. I bet we are also shocked about that. So of course they didn't stop there. This would lead, well, him not answering would lead to the local police chief calling in a SWAT team to enter Conrad's home. Well, at about 3 p.m., the team showed up and shortly after, they entered his home by forcing their way in through a sliding glass door around the backside of his house. When they got inside, they split up into two groups and one group would find Conrad at the end of a hallway, not sure if it was near his bedroom or what. Uh, I also don't know if there was anyone else in the house, but I'll talk about that in a second. So this group finds him at the end of the hallway and they would see him shoot himself in the temple. So there's not one confirmed iteration of his last words, but the group variously repeated something along the lines of, I wasn't going to hurt anybody or I am not going to hurt anybody. After he shot himself, he was airlifted to Dallas Parkland Memorial Hospital, but he was unable to be resuscitated and he was pronounced dead. So part of the reason that I also think he knew what was going on was because of his last words. I think I I've heard them say that on that show a thousand times. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I wasn't here to hurt anybody. I just wanted to hang out. So not saying that that's what he was getting at necessarily, but that's part of the reason that I think he knew what was going on. This wouldn't be the exact reason that the show ended but it was definitely a major role in the show ending. The show did go on for a whole other season after that. It ended a year later in 2007, but then it was canceled. And I think that that happening really, it just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. There's some discussion that some or all of the arrests made on that show were unlawful. Um, I don't have enough knowledge to speak about that and know what I'm talking about, but I can see how people would feel a bit unnerved about the influence a TV production had on a local justice system. You know, that's that's kind of scary. So Myrick says he was a willing participant and that TCAP was not in control but we can all see how TCAP was definitely influential in this. They went to his home rather than isolating him in that controlled environment of that safe house or trap, uh, trap house? No, <laughs> I don't, don't remember actually what they called it now. But you know, this was the first time they had gone to someone's house and I, I think that that was a huge mistake. I, you know, that poses a risk also. It's what if he had other people in the house? What if he was a dangerous person and he decided to take their lives as well? Like you just, you run the risk of a lot of different things, I think. And that just, it wasn't very well thought out. It seemed, obviously it was very rushed. So, and I just don't think the right people had the, the say in this, but I don't know. I wasn't there. But at least when a predator is, you know, lured to the house, it's it's taking them out of, like I said, it's taking them out of where they might feel comfortable even, and and you get that edge on them. But of course, that the, the first person that they do this to is, uh, you know, an elected official or a small-scale politician, if you will, or he was definitely trying to be. It just kind of makes me think, yeah, I think you guys maybe were just trying to get that really good fish on the hook. That's, you know, we live in a society. So, you know, that, like I said, that wasn't the, the main reason that the show ended, but it, it played a huge role. And I think a lot of people were uncomfortable with these 
vigilante groups being so powerful instead of just letting the police do their jobs, you know, and, and without any real investigation beforehand, aside from the perverted justice chats and, and the other non-police organizations, it definitely walks a fine line of morality. Um, perverted justice was unable to provide chat logs and like vital evidence to convict the other people arrested during the sting. 20 something other people were arrested, I guess. Sounds like a huge waste of resources, like a lot of things are, but well, you know, they just weren't helping that much. So I think it's a noble effort to want to take down child predators, obviously, but let police do that. And I think one of the dangerous offshoots of television like this is actually the social media vigilantes it has seemingly spawned. There are a ton of channels out there where people follow the TCAP formula, you know, attempt to lure out a predator, threatening them with exposure of the video online and the police that'll be after them. But multiple law enforcement agencies have actually said that this type of content is dangerous. Uh, aside from dangerous, it really just often produces no arrests. You know, the, these people can't provide any actual evidence evidence that there was any real intention to commit a crime. And there have actually been some instances where these social media vigilantes have actually botched <laughs> an already ongoing investigation into that predator that they tried to lure and catch that day. So personally, I think this is the one thing an average person, okay, not the one thing, but it is one thing that an average person should not be trying to do. I think you should let the police take care of child predators. Uh, you know, like I said, your intentions are good for sure, but it can be a real monumental waste of time for you, for potentially the police. Interestingly enough though, Chris Hansen has defended the operation and has done this as recently as last year, I believe, saying that, you know, I'm trying not to laugh. It's like, I'm not laughing at what's going on. I'm just laughing at the way that he said this in this interview. He's like, whatever, I no, he didn't say whatever. He said, I don't lose any sleep at night basically. And, and just the way that he said it was like, you know, yeah, it happened and I didn't make him do it pretty much. So however you feel about that, just thought that was really a very interesting way to put that. He also claims that, you know, the production team was not the driving force in that and that the police were in full control. So I feel like there are blatantly conflicting moments in this situation to that, what he just said. Chris Hansen urged them to rush the warrants. Yeah, okay, he's trying to say that they had the, the control in doing it, but yeah, man, you used your influence most likely to do this, so you played a part. I don't know, what do you guys think? I don't think this is something that's black and white, you know, I think like a lot of things, there's not one right answer. I mean, other than don't be a child predator, for sure, that is definitely the clear answer here. I'm just not sure how I feel about how they handled the events. I don't really dig that they went to his house, especially if it sounds like they didn't have a lot of evidence, actual evidence. So I just think what's most important to me is that when things like this happen, the proper steps are taken because, I mean, you would think that the police would want it to be as valid as possible to make sure that their investigation goes through, that it's not like thrown out or something. I don't know, but I have something special. Last time at the end of the episode, I read a couple of stories that I found on Reddit. This week, I didn't find stories on Reddit, so I decided to write one. Also, I just wanna go on a little little tangent again. Um, I just wanna say thank you to everyone for being patient while I figure out how to record properly and how to make everything sound good. I already can tell that the audio at the end of the episode probably sounds better than that audio at the beginning. Thanks for being patient with me. Can you smell that? Max asks me. It smells like wet leaves. Sweet, but a little rotten. 
It just rained, so the smell is hanging around and the air feels thick. It's my favorite smell. After exhaling a lungful of it, I say, ah, the sweet smell of fall. It's the time of year when the rain turns to sleet and that sleet eventually turns into snow. I live in the Pacific Northwest in this little town that's not a whole lot more than a few grocery stores and a highway. I'm walking to my house with Max. I live nearby his work, so sometimes I go meet him there when he gets off and we go back to hang out at my place. Max and I have been friends since we were in eighth grade. He was born here, but I came all the way from Arizona when I was 14. No, my last name isn't Swan, and no, my dad isn't a cop. I know exactly what you're thinking right now. Anyway, I met Max pretty soon after I moved here in homeroom, and we instantly clicked. We've been friends ever since. So Max, I know you just got off work, but I was wondering if you could do some runs with me before we totally kick back tonight. Shouldn't take more than an hour or two. I ask him this even though I know he's always down to do whatever. Max is like the king of just being along for the ride. Yeah, man, he says. You know I'm off for the next two days, so let's party. I laugh because I didn't realize that asking someone to ride around on wellness checks was equivalent to partying, but I'm happy to have him along. About 10 minutes later, we approach the gate to my house. Jogging up the front steps, I say, I'm just going to run in and grab my wallet. I'll meet you at the car. Max's eyes get huge. Dude, you walk without your wallet? How would they identify your body? I yell through the screen door. You watch too much true crime, Max. It's only the late afternoon, but it's late November, so it's already getting dark. I don't really have a set schedule. I work for a private company that you can call to check on your family or friends. Usually they're just people who live alone and struggle to take care of themselves or a friend that they haven't been able to contact for a while. We aren't police though, so really all we can do is attempt to make contact and leave a letter for the resident if they don't come to the door. This is only my third week on the job. Before this, I worked as a private detective, and I'll be honest, I just got tired of people asking me if that was my real job, so I decided to pursue a different avenue of the same line of work. A more confrontational side, maybe a more legitimate side to some people. But I'm on call this weekend, like every weekend, because I need the money. So who's first on the list? Max asks me, slapping my shoulder. I love taking him on runs because he makes them way more entertaining than when I do it alone. Uh, this guy named Reggie. His friend hasn't heard from him in a few days, and I guess Reggie's diabetic, so he just wants to make sure if someone can make contact with him and make sure he has his medicine. Max ponders this for a moment. Why don't they just call the police then? Isn't a wellness check what the police usually do? <sighs> I don't know. Some people just don't trust the police because they've been wronged in the past and they think we'll be a safer option. I also think it might sometimes be because the person they want us to check up on might have some questionable life choices going on that they maybe don't want the police to stumble on. Max nods. Yeah, I get that. But what if you see something like super illegal? Do they think you won't report that? Well, part of the discussion prior is I'm not going out of my way to find anything, but if the guy has someone tied up in the living room behind him when he answers the door, that's gonna be different. We both laugh at this ridiculous mental image. Reggie lives out of town, about 30 miles in the opposite direction of any city life. 
The majority of people I check up on live in rural areas where their friends or family struggle to find time to go there or transportation to get there. Hey Max, can you hook up to the Bluetooth? My phone battery is super low again. I say this with hesitancy because I know he is about to light me up for not charging my phone before heading out. He thinks I'm insane. We listen to his favorite podcast, a storytelling podcast that tells stories that chill you to the bone. As we turn onto the dirt road that should lead to Reggie's house, the narrator says, He was the most obvious suspect due to huge gashes on his face, which appeared to be defensive wounds, likely those of Cassandra. Jesus, Max, can't we ever listen to something funny? Max rolls his eyes at me, but he laughs and says even he could stand to take a break from all the doom and gloom. We pull up to Reggie's house, at least from the description I got from my supervisor, I'm pretty sure this is the one. There were a few other houses on the road that looked similar, but he said that Reggie's had an old Coke sign on the mailbox, and sure enough, this one had that. The house was a small log cabin, but there was no windows to indicate anything going on inside, any lights, anybody home, just a porch light. I told Max to stay in the car, and I walked up to the house. Sometimes I wonder how safe it is even telling him to stay in the car, but I push that thought out and I raise my hand to knock on the door. As my knuckles make contact, I get chills. Something feels weird, and not just because of where we're at or that it looks creepy. I've done this work for long enough that I can sort of pick up on a bad energy without seeing the evil right in front of me. I knock several times. Yelling Reggie's name and asking him to come outside, I tell him I'm there on behalf of his friend Eric, and we just want to make sure he's okay. After several minutes of knocking, I decide this one isn't coming to the door, and I leave the letter. I turn back towards my car, and chills go down my spine, so electrifying, I swear I'm going to combust. Max's door is open, and Max is not in the car. I yell his name as I sprint to the car. I left the car running, but when I approach it, it's off and my keys are not in the ignition. Shit! I hiss. Shit! Max! I pull out my phone and I try to call Max, but he doesn't answer. I decide to run back up to the house and bang on the door, but I realize the porch light is off now. This makes me feel like I'm being watched and that whoever is watching me doesn't want to be seen. I should have already called the police by now. I dial 911, but I hear the line drop after two seconds as my phone finally dies. This can't be happening. Where the hell is Max? What happened? I was up there for 10 minutes. I drop to the ground sobbing, but then I'm startled by the feeling of someone grabbing my shoulder and shaking me. It's Max. Dude, wake up! You're kicking me! I look around. We're at my house, not Reggie's. In fact, we're in my living room, and the TV is on YouTube, playing one of Max's creepy stories channels. I'm drenched in sweat, and Max asks me, Don't you need to go to work soon? Want me to come on the runs with you? I say no, probably a little too aggressively because he looks hurt. No, sorry, I just had a terrible dream. We went on a run together, and at the first house we went to, I was at the door for 10 minutes, and when I came back to the car, you were gone. A anyway, I haven't gotten any calls yet. No sooner do I finish this sentence before Dan from work pops up on my phone. I answer the call and warn him, I just woke up. He says, hey George, 
I know it's late, but this call just came through and you're the only one willing to work this weekend. Client says he hasn't heard from his friend Reggie in a while. He's diabetic, so he just wants someone to make sure he's okay. Says it's a ways out, he can't miss his house, got a coke sign on the mailbox. It's out in Denning, about 30-40 miles. My blood runs cold. I clear my throat <clears throat> and try to compose myself. There's no way he'll believe me if I tell him about the dream I just had. Uh, actually, Dan, I came down with something nasty and I think I'm gonna have to stay home. I hang up. Max can tell I'm visibly upset, but he doesn't press it. He pulls up my favorite comedian's newest stand-up and asks me if I want something to drink. Water. I finally choke out. Uh, hey Max, is your job hiring? I'm feeling a little paranoid in this new gig. Max laughs the hardest he's laughed in months, and through tears he says, Dude, and you say I watch too much true crime. <laughs> Alright, so I did have a lot of fun writing that. Uh, you know, to tie it up into a short story, of course, I did have to... That ending came swift, and it was a bit of a lighter ending. But I do feel like it would be fun to elaborate on that spooky element at some point, so I might do that. Before we go, I wanted to drop a creepy fact for you. There's something called tooth-in-the-eye surgery. Surgeons put a tooth in a blind person's eye to restore their sight. It was pioneered in the 1960s, and it actually works, and it's still being done today. That's one thing I want you all to look up and learn about, and let me know what you think. It sounds fake, but I promise it's not. <laughs> All right, guys, that is everything for this episode. Thank you so much for everybody who has liked and shared the podcast uh, over the last week. It's really been amazing to have all that support. Um, so, you know, I just really appreciate all the feedback, all the love. If you have any, like I said, if you have any original stories or any content you would like to submit, please submit them to me on Instagram or to my email, uh, both of which you will find in the description, along with the stories for the, or sorry, along with the sources I used for the story about Bill Conrad. So, um, you know, that one, there's there's definitely more to that as well. Do, do your research on that. Form your own opinions. that being said, thank you for joining me, and I will see you next Sunday.